Welcome to Glam City. I'm Anna Clark. And I'm Tamsin Peach. And this is our weekly history chat about what's on in history land around Sydney. GLAM, that great acronym, stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of Sydney's cultural scene with the people tasked with preserving our culture. We've got two guests on our show today, Tanya Evans, a historian and co-author of three books, including Fractured Families, Life on the Margins in Colonial New South Wales, which she wrote in collaboration with family historians. She's the president of the History Council of New South Wales, a senior lecturer and director of the Centre for Applied History at the Department of Modern History at Macquarie University, and has worked as a historical consultant for the National Council for the Unmarried Mother and Her Child in the UK, the Benevolent Society and the Australian television series Who Do You Think You Are? Welcome, Tanya. Thank you for having me, Anna. And our second guest is Peter Hobbins, who is a historian of science, technology and medicine at the University of Sydney. And he tells me he's intrigued by the ways that knowledge is generated applied, especially through interactions with non-humans. So I look forward to hearing a bit more about that very soon. And he's explored this topic via publications on medical research, human-animal relations, quarantine, military medicine and aviation safety. And congratulations, Peter, because recently you were awarded the New South Wales Community and Regional History Prize at the New South Wales Premier's Awards for History for your book with Annie Clark from the University of Sydney and Ursula K. Frederick from the ANU called Stories from the Sandstone, Quarantine Inscriptions from Australia's Immigrant Past. And we have to welcome you back to 2SER because I hear you were here in the 90s. Yes, and they did actually let me in the building, even though I did take this station off the air once in 1996. A rite of passage, I am sure. Now, Tanya, you have had a very busy week recently, History Week. How did it go? History Week was a fantastic week, Tams, and we had a lot of fun celebrating history across the whole of New South Wales, with a whole range of diverse people and organisations involved representing history, you know, showcasing the wonderful archives in their libraries, galleries and museums, and just collaborating with a whole range of diverse producers of history to kind of get everybody into the history fold. So yes, we had a fabulous week. And you talk about those diverse producers and you if you look at the uh, catalogue, you know, the brochure for what was on across New South Wales and it's enormous. How does it actually work in practice? The History Council organises it, um, but do people make suggestions to you? So the History Council has organised History Week for the last 20 years. So the organisation is a peak body organisation representing diverse organisations across the state, but also, uh, you know, a huge range of people just interested in in history. So all sorts of people are members of the organisation. And each year the General Council thinks about an appropriate theme that we can work towards for celebrating history in September. And organisations pitch to put on a variety of events to celebrate their archives, their local history, their community history. So it does take a lot of diverse forms. And do you take suggestions from the public? We do. What, for themes? Do yeah, you mean? For yes, themes and absolutely. And yeah, we, are... we want a walking tour. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and people do walking tours. So, for example, during History Week, um, we always have the annual history lecture, which is a celebration of professional history. And during uh, History Week, Michelle Arrow talked about the 1970s. I think you had Michelle Arrow here uh, to talk about her work on national culture in the 1970s. 
the City of Sydney historian Dr Lisa Murray celebrated the heyday of radio drama in the 1930s and 40s. We have speakers travelling all around New South Wales, engaging with different communities, talking about their research on a whole heap of subjects. So one of our former PhD students, Chelsea Barnett, talked about uh, masculinity in the 1950s uh, with, a, with a very enthusiastic audience in Toronto, up, up on the coast. So yeah, it really is very exciting. Did you have a special highlight from the week? A special highlight? Well, of course, my friend and colleague, lecture, Michelle Arrow, mm-hmm. at the annual <laughs> history lecture. And the Mint is such a glorious um, venue for celebrating history as well. And, you know, it's a real kind of testament to the way in which teamwork is really, really crucial, especially for kind of cash-strapped, mostly volunteer-run organisations like the History Council, mm. like a lot of our um, mm. um, archives, libraries and museums. You know, we have to work collaboratively in order to be effective getting our message across. And our wonderful cultural partners, the Sydney Living Museum, you know, hosted us last night. So that's always a highlight. Mm. But of course, so is the Premier's, the Mm. announcement of the Premier's History Awards and getting to celebrate the wonderful achievements of authors like Peter there. So, yep, that's also a highlight. And also because we had such a star cast uh, with the Premier there and Mary Bashir and the Minister for Arts also celebrating Mm. what is most exciting about history across the state. People really do turn up for it. Do they ever turn up in historical dress? Not in my experience, Anna, but maybe if you're volunteering for next year, by all means, embrace the moment. (laughs) Peter, did you have a highlight? Obviously, winning the Premier's History Award must have been a huge thrill. Yeah, I have to say that was a pretty spectacular evening on our behalf, but also it was wonderful to be there with colleagues across public history and academic history and from the community as well. We are really thrilled to see the, the broad representation and the new state librarian is, uh, was in attendance too. So, in fact, uh, Richard Neville, the Mitchell librarian, did make the comment that although it's the Premier's History Awards, it's very rare that we're actually graced by mm-hmm. the presence of the Premier. So that obviously showed a, a real level of political support that we mm-hmm. welcomed on the mm-hmm. night, yeah. And I I was actually there at the awards, like the two of you, and I noticed that the awardees took every opportunity to make a case, an advocacy moment, given the presence of the Premier and the Minister for Culture, or was it Minister for Education? For Arts. For Arts, yeah. Yeah. So well done, you know, seizing that moment. Flying the historical flag. Flying the historical flag. Um, Tanya, are there challenges to engaging audiences during History Week, or do you actually find the opposite, that there's a lot of interest and engagement from communities around New South Wales? There are challenges. I mean, I think there is always an enthusiastic response around History Week. Uh, We have over 90 events generally registered across the week. It's a very busy week. I guess what we would like to see is... In some ways, it's nice to have a targeted week where everybody concentrates their efforts, but also it means that that week is sort of bonkers with regards Mm. to history. And it would be nice if we had a little bit more of an even spread across the year. And certainly with regards to our Speaker Connect program, where we send speakers across the state, we'd like to be able to do that more often across Mm. the year so that we get different communities celebrating history, you know, from January through to December as opposed to just September. Um, Because, you know, for these small organisations and people who often do this on a volunteer basis... You know, it's a huge effort to undertake uh, in one one week. So I think it would be nice to spread some of that effort mm. across the year. And it is a colossal program that you had with the Speaker Connect. You went to Singleton, Yamba, Grafton, Maruya, Blue Mountains, Tamworth. Uh, so many people participating. What were the sorts of topics that they were talking on? Look, they really vary. And it's, it's speakers. It's an opportunity for speakers to um, get paid for presenting their research and also to meet diverse audiences. So a lot of people don't travel far out of Sydney 
very often to talk about history. I know Peter and I do, and probably Tamsin and you, you do, Anna, as well. But some people don't, you know, mm. they, they have their little comfort zone. And I think it's really important to kind of travel the mm. length and breadth of New South Wales mm. because it's so delightful. Mm, yeah. And, you know, one of our biggest challenges, like a lot of historical organisations, is dealing with a, an ageing demographic. And what is really important for many of us is to try and engage young people in mm. these sorts of celebrations of history. And that's certainly one of the key remits of the History Council of New mm. South Wales. Yeah, I gave a talk during History Week at Marimbula and uh, it was terrific, as you say, to really connect with an local audience and talk about issues that are affecting them. But there was only one uh, young person there, and I'm excluding myself from that, sadly, who was a Year 12 student, and she was kind of talking about herself as some kind of history freak, um, which is sad because... Uh, you know, history can involve everybody uh, and everybody is connected to the past. What are some of the tactics, for want of a better word, guerrilla tactics that the History Council is um, <laughs> experimenting with to try and locate and engage some of those other Well, we audiences. are certainly trying to focus our attention on those young people. I think it's partly we've got to try and get younger people to revalue local history in particular. I think they often think that local history is not a subject that actually um, does engage them. And I think we need to get them thinking about uh, getting them to engage with their local community in lots of different ways. Um, I also am familiar with lots of young people's enthusiasm for history. And um, it's good to be able to reap that in all sorts of ways. So when we give talks to Year 12 students and history extension students, that's our moment Mm. um, to get them to think very carefully about how they can think about history differently. Mm. And it's not just about, you know, Nazi Germany and ancient Greece. You know, we've got to think about what it is about Australian history that can make them passionate about the Mm. past. And that they can actually do history. It's not just something that you learn, but something that you can actually practice in in your life. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Glam City, what's on for history in Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and your favourite podcast app. In terms of engaging with young people, one of the events, so I'm very familiar with those year two enthusiasts, partly through my work in family history. I know you talked about that. And, you know, my recent research has revealed lots of young people passionate about their family history and engaging with history more broadly through that. And so one of the events I'm very excited about in November is a collaboration with the staff at the Australian Dictionary of Biography and at the ANU and at the National Library of Australia. We're going to be organising a big two-day conference where we're going to be engaging with not just academics and professional historians but encouraging family historians and others and community historians to participate and see what we can learn from each other about our practice of history. Now Peter, stories from the sandstone, quarantine inscriptions from Australia's immigrant past. Uh, This is the winner of the New South Wales Premier's History Awards for uh, Regional and Community History. Tell us a bit about North Head Quarantine Station. So North Head is right at the entrance of Sydney Harbour, opposite South Head, quite logically. And from 1835 until 1984, there was a quarantine station located there. Not everybody who came into Sydney by ship went to the quarantine station, but if there was likely to be disease or declared contagious disease on board, the ships turned to the right as they came into the harbour and most of the passengers would be taken ashore, either because they were sick, because they'd been in contact with someone who was sick, or because they were healthy but they couldn't yet be released into the city as well. So over that 150 years, we had about 16,000 people quarantined at the station, mostly off ships, but also some residents of the city were taken out there when there were major epidemics in the city. What drew us to the place and to its extraordinary history is 
a large number of these people left carvings in the sandstone at the quarantine station. And working with a team of archaeologists, we recorded over 1,600 individual carvings. Now, they might be JM, they might be 1879, or they might be a really elaborate panel that looks a bit like a commemorative panel in a church or a headstone, actually, as well, that would name the ship, the date, the chief officers on board, how many passengers, where they'd come from and when they arrived. Hang so, on, hang on. Back it up, back it yes. up. Right. So you, North Head yes. used to be quite isolated from the settlement in Sydney. Absolutely, yes. Still covered with a lot of bush. Yes. There's buildings there. There's buildings, presumably, that people used to stay in. But where? how did you find 1,600? I mean, that's a lot of inscriptions in the rock. Presumably, they weren't all on show. No, historically, it was a very isolated site, which is why, of course, you'd use it for quarantine isolation. You know, it's near Manly, but it's a long way from Manly in in many ways. So it's also now uh, a national park. So there's actually a surprising amount of vegetation there. Most of the carvings, though, we tend to think of this sort of you know, informal artwork as being graffiti and therefore it would be scurrilous, surreptitious, hidden out of view. At the quarantine station, it's quite the opposite. These carvings or inscriptions, as we called them, were on public view. They were placed in what we tend to think of as galleries, you know, tens if not hundreds of them all in a row. It was a huge public display that was authorised and allowed by the, uh, the quarantine authorities. And so one of the interesting things is that, yes, we had to go hunting around in the bush a lot to try and find additional ones, but most of them weren't hidden. They were actually on plain view. Is it the historical equivalent of, you know, when you're driving through the um, bush and you see a sort of a rock face with Jazzy was here or Tessa loves Simon? Is it that kind of level or are there sort of complicated messages from the quarantine internees? It depends a bit on the language. So on the one level, yes. And what we tended to think of them was as a community of inscriptions, that they inform and speak to each other, you know, that people come along, see the tradition and react to it and have their own. They copy some of the templates or they mirror some of those sentiments. Most of those in English are pretty much the marker of presence. I was here and various permutations Mm. of that. With a Z, I was. Yeah, yes. What we tended to see, though, with other languages, particularly Chinese and Japanese inscriptions that we had translated, was much more elaborate messaging, was often poetry with allusions to classical literature. And it wasn't all protest literature. Some of it was actually quite happy uh, to have been, you know, in. it's such a beautiful place to be, to spend a couple of weeks of enforced holiday, <laughs> unless, of course, you're dying from smallpox. But some of them were also quite vigorous protests against the way people were being treated at the quarantine station as well. And so there was a whole level of racial discrimination in addition to that concern about being locked away from your job and your loved ones mm. and the people you're visiting in Sydney. Yeah. There's this beautiful inscription that you quote in the synopsis to the book that you kindly uh, sent us. So I'm quoting here. Two faces sculpted into a cliff ledge. Damaged by weather, they profiled a mustachioed man and a woman who lie side by side for well over a century. This carved couple continue to erode away together. This like blows my mind, right? You have identified who created this sculpture and it's the, well, you can tell us who. Yes, his name was Tosilio Bargioni, who was an Italian uh, who came to Australia via Britain in 1901. 1901, right. So you've managed to work out who made this inscription uh, when he arrived. How? How on earth did you do this? (laughs) One of the nice things about the inscriptions is that a lot of people who took the time to carve things, and and the heads that Tosilio carved, so one is looking directly at you and one's turned in profile, They're beautifully sculpted, and yet he was a baker. 
So you do wonder where people develop these you know, artistic skills and their carving skills, and I certainly wouldn't want to talk up how informal and sketchy a lot of the, the carvings were. But in his case, it, it did actually say created by T. Bargioni, and it had a 1901 there. Uh, he also carved a couple of other beautiful inscriptions nearby. So we were able to go back through the shipping records for 1901 and see which passenger matched that name and whether he arrived with a woman or not, and he didn't. So that led us to wonder who was the woman. It looked like he'd sketched himself, but he'd also carved this uh, woman's profile as well. So knowing who he was and being able to go back through immigration records and doing a bit of genealogical research, we were able to pin together bits and pieces of his story as well. We know he came from Firenze in Italy. We know he ended up in California. But the trail goes a little bit cold there. But he did marry a woman whose name was Mary Polizzi, but that was in California, and we don't know whether he knew her before he came to Australia, and if that's whose beautiful face we can still see sort of crumbling away at North Head, or if it's another woman from his past. It's an extraordinary collaboration uh, because, you know, as a historian, I go snorkelling there a lot, and under the water it's beautiful, full of fish, really vivid, and I pop up and I see these what I consider to be completely wacky carvings. What did the archaeologists bring to this analysis? This was a fantastic project precisely because it was historians and archaeologists working together to create a new understanding of part of our city's history. So we all loved that process and we learned a lot from it. You know, They called me Schliemann, which is kind of a slightly pejorative reference to an early archaeologist who was noted for looting sites. And <laughs> they called themselves Google historians because they're always getting out on their iPhones and looking up information because so much historical information is available digitally now. So we did have to discipline each other a little bit too and, 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 and set out some parameters. But the great thing was that we did actually work together. I would go out and do some of the archaeological field work with them and they would have fun looking through historical records like shipping records and some of the genealogical material or you know, boring, what you might think of as the boring records of quarantine that I pulled up out of the National Archives or state records, and they would have fun actually looking through that as well. But working together, it meant that we started to see that these inscriptions weren't just simply one person carving I was here, but actually mm. it was a whole process of conversation between these. There were stylistic correspondences between different types. There were these diverse languages. And what I learned from working with archaeologists is, it's a rather large word, but the phenomenology of the past, of actually putting yourself in a place, looking at it, trying to imaginatively reconstruct what it meant for somebody to be standing at a cliff face in 1878 and chiseling away at it in order to create a message. And, of course, chiseling meant that it wasn't a private hidden mm. act. It meant that everybody who was there at the quarantine station went, here you go, boom, 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 boom. So to me, I learned a great deal about the sense of place mm. and of belonging and of that moment in time through archaeology, which seems bizarre that we're looking at rocks, but we're actually evoking a sense of the past. And that, to me, helped really enliven the way I went through the historical records in the archives and museums I consulted. That sense of place is really vivid in the book. You know, you can see it in the incredible pictures that come through and the stories that you tell. And that leap of imagination that you just described then of being in that place reminds me of Tawny's comment that to be a good historian, all you need is a good pair of boots. It's quite unusual often for historians to actually be in place. You know, we sort of see ourselves as, li you know, in libraries, in archives and so on. Was this a departure for you as a historian to sort of get your boots on and be sitting in this quarantine place and... Ex 100 years after these historical subjects and how did that make you feel? Absolutely. So I was always 
pretty skeptical about the need to visit places to understand their past. And also, as Tamsa mentioned earlier, you know, my, my focus in history is often on non-humans, but I now include environments in that, that broad concern. So it was a real revelation for me as to how important it is to actually be at a site and understand its changing moods, the weather, uh, mm. what we call affect. You know, there's those feelings in your bones that you get from a place that it's not quite emotion it's not quite something you can pin down and yet there is a definite sensibility and the longer you spend in a place the more you feel it's changing moods and so for instance in quarantine setting we all tend to think of quarantine stations must be like you know a concentration camp people are there sick dying being controlled and, and you know managed to the nth degree but if you spend weeks at a time at a place like the quarantine station, you realise that it's a beautiful place. There are sunny days. You can go for a gorgeous swim in the harbour. And I started reading the archives differently. And I'd find that actually I look at diaries of people in quarantine. They say, this is a glorious land and we were picking oysters off the rocks and we, you know, boats were coming up and offering us you know, produce or we could fish. We could go surfing. And so you start to see the entire process of quarantine, especially as we move from the more fraught 19th century into the much more relaxed 20th century process, you actually see it really as a place of leisure where particularly, I guess you'd say, sort of working class people who are suddenly stuck in quarantine at the shipping company's expense for two weeks are thinking, oh, it's quite a pleasant holiday before I have to go back to work. So I'm not trying to say that it was all, you know, um, sunshine, lollipops and rainbows, but uh, being there, having that sense of just how wonderful it is to be on site and, w- and the way that people were and weren't forced to move around the location really profoundly changed my view of history. And it certainly dramatically enhanced my belief and passion for local history as well. I mean, one of the things that's striking about uh, the inscriptions in the book is the number of languages that are represented. I mean, did that, how many are represented? And does that disturb or, you know, you talk about this as local history, but there are strands going out connecting to all parts of the world. It's a great point because I can't tell you exactly how many, but I can list some of them. So we have Arabic, French, Russian, Finnish, Chinese, Japanese. We have some German gravestones, but not actual uh, inscriptions. Uh, Italian? There's Maori even, and Italian as well, amongst the many that are out there. Now, part of our project was we really insisted on wherever we could having, and Greek, of course, is actually a very prominent one as well. We tried where we could to have those languages translated precisely because otherwise they're inaccessible, even though they're right there before your eyes. If, as an English speaker, you can't read them, they're being excluded from that story, just as often the people who were quarantined were being excluded from our understanding of the, the wider history. So we really did pay a lot of attention, particularly to the Asian languages, but also, for instance, the Arabic inscriptions we had translated as well. And that really helped broaden the story for us to understand that quarantine was never just about passengers who were sick. It was also about travellers, visitors to this place, Sydney residents who were sent out when there was bubonic plague or uh, the Spanish flu in the city. Also, the sailors, you know, large numbers of crew on board steamships in the late 19th century and into the 20th century were what were known as Laskers, which is a very broad term, meaning anybody roughly from the Middle East across to sort of Bengal, uh, as well as a large number of Chinese crew. And their presence is largely forgotten at the quarantine station. And yet here they are asserting their presence in the rock, and it's still there 150 years later. So 
being able to translate their messages and seeing how learned those carvings are was really quite fascinating. Uh, do many talk about the politics of the day with regard to, say, the white Australia policy or even Indigenous politics or uh, the, the role of a woman in uh, 19th century or colonial Australia? Yes and no. Uh, there's not really any reference to Indigenous politics, although interestingly we've always wondered, and my two archaeology colleagues come from a background in Aboriginal rock art, we always wondered whether, in fact, Indigenous carvings at North Head inspired this tradition amongst the arriving quarantine detainees. We're not sure, but it, it's a possibility. Women are vastly underrepresented, as you would probably imagine, in that historical context. And often what we think was happening was that when a man carved his name, he was effectively projecting his whole family. You know, he was the head of the family, the paterfamilias. He was saying, and I was here, but of course we were all here, and it's sort of subsuming the whole uh, group into that. So there are some family groups represented, but they're pretty rare. So, Peter, do you think your research on the quarantine station will help lead to its uh, being admitted into World Heritage listing? We hope. It's a big process to achieve a World Heritage listing. And so uh, when we received the award, I, I made a quite pointed plea to the Premier that this site is globally unique. There are other places around the world where there's a long tradition of carved inscriptions, often in uh, other sites of detention like prisons, say Robben Island off mm-hmm. sa- uh, in South Africa, for instance, is a classic example. But North Head Quarantine Station is the only quarantine station we know of that has this extraordinary assemblage with such a rich history that connects so well with documentary history. And the site itself is so incredibly intact from its 19th and 20th century formations that that we can see it has a, a significant value on a global scale. So it's a big process, but we're hoping that certainly telling the stories we did in the book will actually help mount a stronger case for going ahead with that. Just before we switch to our last uh, Glam Slam segment, I want you to tell me in a few key words what the non-human projects you're working on now are. Aircraft crashes. And... And aviation safety. And snakes? Or snakes is over? I've largely finished my research on snakes, although I, I can't ever quite get away from them. I was always drawn to venomous, bitey creatures as well, I think, partly because people hate them, and I'm, I'm not trying to say that we should all love them, but I'm just trying to write them back into the bigger story of history. Glam City, what's on for History in Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and online. Now it's Glam Slam time and I am going to ask our two guests what event in their history calendars they are going to recommend to our listeners. Tanya. Well, I would certainly recommend the Family History Conference that I mentioned earlier, Tamsin, but I also would like to recommend uh, an event that my Centre for Applied History is partnering with the um, Ancient Research Cultures Centre at Macquarie University on a history and gaming event on the 2nd of November. Venue yet to be decided, but um, certainly check our website for details. That would be soon. the Macquarie website? The Macquarie website, that's the Centre for Applied History website. And Peter? I'm looking forward to going to a book launch at Glee Books on the 6th of October by a former journalist who became an air safety expert, Christine Negroni. Now, she's just released a book ostensibly about the disappearance of MH370 a few years ago in the Indian Ocean, but she uses that as an opportunity to go back and look at the history of other aircraft that vanished in the past. And 
you know, using the, the typical aircraft crash methodology, asking, you know, what lessons did we learn from history? And I think that's, that's a really interesting point for historians to ask is why do air crash investigations insist on that point of learning from history when, as historians, we're always a bit more cautious about that methodology? So, But she's a journalist. It's a, it's a really good read, and so I'm looking forward to meeting her and uh, getting her to sign my copy. Fantastic. And Anna Clark. Yeah, I am going to – it's school holidays, and I am going to be taking up – Peter's lead there and taking my kids to look at the quarantine station and also to try and look at some of the other rock art around or rock carvings around Sydney. I'm going to take them also down to Bundina to look at some of the Aboriginal engravings and the sandstone there and have a couple of day trips lined up. Fantastic. Now we must also plug your book, Peter. Where is it available if listeners want to go and buy it? You can buy Stories from the Sandstone from the State Library of New South Wales and the National Library of Australia. You can certainly order it through any of your local bookshops or directly from the publisher as well. It's Arbon Publishing, A-R-B-O-N. And Tanya, if people want to uh, attend any Speaker Connect events? They just have to look at the History Council's website. And that would be? That would be Times on the History Council of New South Wales dot org dot au. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone, for joining us here on Glam City. That's history in your backyard. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com, and you can also search for us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can shoot us an email at glamcity at 2SER.com. Thanks to those who have already got in touch. We appreciate all your emails. We take suggestions. And a special thanks to Tanya Evans and Peter Hobbins, our guests today, We'll see you all back here next time for more Glam Conversations. Glam out. Glam out.